All right. Welcome back, everybody, to The Corresponding Author. My name is Stephanie Hicks, and I'm here with my co-host, John Michelli, and this is episode eight. Do we have a title for this episode? Starting New Projects? That's a great point. Okay, so where did this title come from? So we were discussing some things on Twitter, and Matthew McCall, who's a graduate of the Johns Hopkins Biostat Department, who's now at Rochester, uh, was discussing how do you choose whether you're going to take a new project or choosing new projects or things like that. So I figured that would be a good time as ever to discuss it. Okay. So I have a first couple of clarification questions. So when you say start a new project, do you think he means an, like an R project, like a dot R project? Or do you think he just means like a collaborator comes to you and they have a problem and they may or may not have had worked with you in the past? And so the idea is, is this like a new enough problem that I need to start a separate project for? Or does he think he means like, um, or what do you think he means? Yeah, I think he means like a new project, like a new scientific project or, or something like that, where someone says, you know, either this project's closed out or I have some new data or I have something like that. And do you want to start with it? So I think, I feel like that's the kind of gist I was getting. And then also he, it has the presumption that you have the choice to say yes or no. Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> okay. So Matt, if you're listening, can you write us back on Twitter and give us a little bit more clarification? We'll make some assumptions for this podcast, but if you could write us back, that would be great. So, okay. So let's say you and I are collaborators and we have collaborated in the past on different projects. And I come to you with like a small variant of an idea of something we've previously done. How do you know when you should start, quote unquote, a new project? Or is it something that's so tangential, like so similarly related that is it really a new project or how do you know? Um, I think it's a new project definitely when there's a new data set, um, even if it's the same kind of hypothesis in some respects uh, as a previous analysis. Uh, even though those sometimes can be a little bit more straightforward because you may already have a blueprint of what you consider doing. But with any new data set, for sure, there's always different problems, different changes that you, you just never, I feel like you just never think about. And then once you dig in, you're like, oh, this data should be like this data from before. And then some, for some reason, it's always not in some specific ways. So a new data set for one, I would say, is a new project. Okay. And so then the question becomes, what do you do with that new data set? So do you start like a formal folder on your computer for it or? Yeah. So uh, I'll ask you how you're organized. So I have um, essentially like two large folders on my computer that are packages, projects, presentations, and papers are all four separate things because I tend to put the analysis and any data in the projects folder. And then we're actually going to the writing. If I'm doing the writing, it'll usually be in like R Markdown or something like that. So I'll, ha I'll put uh, the results into a paper folder there. But it would I would start a new project folder under the projects, uh, like master folder I have. And I would probably name it with the collaborator's name and then underscore some thing that relates to that uh that project so i might have you know five or six folders from the same collaborator if we've done five or six projects what about yourself yeah that's interesting so i have this first dichotomy in my head is that does it go in dropbox or not and basically anything that's not on github goes into dropbox because i want it somehow backed up but if it's anything to do with a github project then i keep it out of my dropbox folder and i keep it for example, just in like the My Documents folder. And then I'm just constantly pushing and pulling in between 
those repos uh, between my local computer and GitHub. So if it's like a presentation, I'm realistically just not going to, it's not like I have a GitHub repo with all of my presentations in them. And so that usually lives in Dropbox. And then whenever I want to add a specific presentation to my website, then I move it into my GitHub repo corresponding to my website. But if I have, um, so most of my folders live outside of Dropbox related to projects or packages or data analyses because I'm almost always committing them to GitHub. So inside of my non-Dropbox folders, I have a projects folder, I have a my packages folder, and then I have like a classroom folder. So all of my repos related to classroom stuff. So inside of my projects folder, then I have many different subdirectories corresponding to different projects for different collaborators, for example. And that really relates to the analysis portion. Um, and then there's a My Packages folder, and that's related to essentially all the R packages that I write or maintain or develop. Um, yeah. And then so then there's working on the cluster. Yeah. So I, I think it's interesting uh, when you touch on maybe like a folder is a collaborator. So I think that's really appropriate when you do kind of share data across kind of projects sometimes because uh, I don't want to necessarily duplicate that data, but I do... I personally have the feeling that a folder should encapsulate like the entire project, right? And we've talked about our projects before, um, like like the letter R, not our. Um, so that I feel like they should be encapsulated in one folder. So if I like zip that up and send it to someone, they'd be able to reproduce and run everything that they would need there. But sometimes that's not always that easy because the data is too big or the data is shared across certain things. Yeah, that's exactly my problem. So with genomics, the data are always too big to be able to push almost always, I should not say always, almost always too big to be able to store in a GitHub repo. And so what I do is I almost always immediately transfer whatever data that I'm working with to my cluster or to wherever I'm going to store it more long term. And then I have a essentially a different directory in which I have to load in the data to and from. I could keep it inside of my GitHub repo and just not have it tracked. So you could, for example, tell the .gitignore file, which is this file inside of a GitHub repo, to basically ignore certain files ending with certain um, endings, such as like HTML or PNGs or JPEGs or whatever you want. I could tell it to ignore an entire folder called data, for example, but then it's not tracked. And so I need to make sure it's backed up. And so if it's not in a Dropbox folder, then it's not really being backed up. Yeah. So I kind of, everything kind of goes in my Dropbox folder unless it's like sensitive data for the most part or data that I, that cannot go like literally anywhere but my computer. Um, but isn't that kind of like double backing up? I mean, double, yep. double tracking. <laughs> Okay, so you're good with that. Okay, <laughs> I I am good with that. I also uh, have uh, I use a, a Mac program called SuperDuper, which hmm, what's that? Uh, I use I use so I actually do double backups on both settings, right? So Dropbox, usually GitHub, and then I use Time Machine plus SuperDuper. The difference between Time Machine and SuperDuper in, in some respects is that SuperDuper can make a bootable um, disk. So like if my computer mm -hmm. exploded tomorrow, I could actually run my machine, or I can actually download it, an image that's runnable, executable from SuperDuper. Nice. That's actually really helpful. Hmm. Yeah. So I don't know. Um, so do you do a physical backup 
as well? Ooh, this is a sore subject in my household. So my husband all the time is asking me, Stephanie, when's your last backup? <laughs> and I I have this sad look on my face every time he asks me this because it's never been a priority. It can't be that hard. I know it cannot be that hard to like hook up Time Machine. So maybe this podcast will be the inspiration I need to do a backup. I mean, I it's it's not hard. I don't think usually the the thing I have just automatically runs when it when I plug it in. Uh, the thing I'll say though, sometimes uh, it gets annoying that I'm kind of tethered to my desk, especially if you're running meetings and you have to make sure you like exit out of everything and have to stop backups. And also I like to usually shift to like standing um, and I can't really do like, I can't move my computer to a different spot to stand if the backup's still running. So um, yeah, those are like very trivial things and you just wait till the backup kind of executes. You just skip that one or something like that. Um, and I haven't luckily had to use those yet, but uh, I'm always kind of a, a double, as you, as you can tell, a double kind of backup person. You're extra cautious. Yeah, I just feel like just one day something's going to happen where like this computer just explodes and I'm going to have to pick up all the pieces i know it's gonna drop i have a a young two young children and i'm always terrified when they're around my computer i'm like no (laughs) (laughs) this is the day well i will lose everything but to be fair i don't feel like i'm going to lose everything quote unquote i mean yeah it would be a pain to like back i mean to get a new computer i would have to a connect dropbox and then b i would have to essentially clone my repos down to my laptop in in a particular folder structure that i like but everything that's outside of my dropbox folder is more or less on github if it's outside of my dropbox folder that's because it's being backed up in another place or another location however that is basically making assumption that github is always going to be there is that a fair assumption uh I don't know. I mean, I feel like for the foreseeable future, yes, but who knows? I mean, I don't know. Software. I mean, the industry is a weird place. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think I think it's going to be around for a while, but I think a lot of uh, people, especially depending which generation they came up through the internet, they've seen the dot com bubble burst in a way where like you know a lot of those companies you thought like they'd be around forever i mean in some respects if you would have predicted if if you would have said yahoo would have been taken over by a huge search giant like google i don't know if you would have really believed it back in like the early 90s um or something or maybe the later 90s so um things can change but yeah for the for the foreseeable future especially with microsoft being a billion dollar organization kind of backing them I think I feel I feel okay with your backup system. It's just sometimes having it physical there is is fine with me because it's also an external hard drive. Yeah, I know. And I can definitely see the super duper aspect of having a bootable bootable <laughs> a beautiful bootable disk. <laughs> That's a time twister. Yes. I give up. You know what I mean. <laughs> All right, so now we know where we're going to put the folder. <laughs> right? Right? So that assumes you're going to start it. I'm going to start. So yeah, if my collaborator comes to me, or even if I want to start a new project, I usually start a new project whenever I either have a new data set or a new question. So if it's something that is not really related to something that I've done before, then I'm almost always going to start a new quote unquote project. Now, it's interesting to me to know how fine, like how gray of a scale that is. So for example, if you're asking a question like, is X related to Y? And then you come along six months later and you're like, is X related to Z? Is that a whole new project? 
because technically you're still maybe using a version of the data that was like previously captured before, but you're now interested in a new aspect of the data analysis. Is that a new project? That's where I'm less fuzzy or I'm more fuzzy. I wouldn't see that as a new project. I would still keep everything under the old thing. Whereas like really the because there's so much data overlap, it's almost complete data overlap. I would say like that for me is definitely the same project. It's just a different question. Realistically, I'd probably started like a new R markdown or a new R script, for example, or a new Python notebook in which I now go down the path of investigating X and Z versus X and Y. What would you do? Yeah. Uh, that definitely would be the case. I would probably use, uh, I might modify the previous scripts that if like Z was uh, dropped out from the final data sets that we had used, uh, I would have to go back and I would probably go back and edit them to keep that variable throughout the analysis. So it could be really the exact same data set that we use for X versus Y. Because if we definitely want to see the case where, I, I think in many cases you might run into like especially with paper revisions, you might run into someone saying like, I think your relationship between X and Y is interesting, but you have to adjust for Z. So I could see that's not a new project in any capacity, but I think uh, I see that in the same way where I'd have to go back and just keep that variable if I had dropped it out previously um, versus like kind of copying that script over and then modifying like a brand new thing. I would go back and edit the scripts. But what if it's like very costly in terms of time or resources to get C? So if you're starting a new project with like X and Y, for example, and you're going down your happy way and you develop the data analysis for it, you do the data analysis for it. And then six months to a year later, you're like, hmm, you know, it would be really great if we could have also captured Z. So then you're proposing that you go back and you edit or you go back and invest the time to fix your old scripts to gather the data for Z. And so it's like there's a cost trade-off there. Like how much time – I think that's what Matt – one of Matt's questions was that um, how much time do you spend upfront trying to make your project as robust, I guess, as possible in terms of potentially – um, mitigating against these types yeah. of issues downstream, right? Like you have to decide like how much time and effort you're going to spend on a new project when you're starting up. Yeah, no, I, th I think that that's a good point. I've actually run into that with uh, one or two projects that have extended the life of the project uh, very, very long. And actually um, it, was a, it was an area that I didn't really understand um, certain aspects of the disease that well. And then later um, some new people joined on the project and were like, you need to definitely... Um, you definitely need to adjust for like these Z variables and I didn't have them and they had to go to charts to collect them, which actually extended things uh, extensively. And to be honest, that uh, led me to be a bit more skittish as to working with that main investigator again, because, you know, I, I was relying on them to be the expertise, be like, are, do we have the variables we need to adjust for? And they were like, absolutely. I'm like, okay, we did the analysis, everything was written up. And then some other collaborators that they had worked with said, you know, this is clearly missing these three main things that everybody uses. Like, why are these not in there? And then we can definitely get access to them. So that um, kind of leads me to the point that I think when I'm choosing a new project, Time is important to estimate, but I will generally uh, choose projects with if I have a if I have a great collaborator, I will probably accept that project uh, with a lot of mitigating circumstances and be totally okay with it. Whereas some people, um, I just won't work with because I know our the way we collaborate together isn't efficient or isn't good, or I've had struggles with them in the past. So uh, collaborator specific choices are definitely high on the initial priority list. Um, but I agree 
Um, sometimes uh, yeah. it is just so fundamental. You're like, okay, we have to go back and do this versus sometimes I'm like, well, if the reviewers really believe that, let them tell us that. And let's not start making a lot of hypotheticals of we didn't adjust for X, Y, and Z. Cause that, I wouldn't say that's a slippery slope, but that, that can lead you to do, you know, a lot of work that may not have any fruit at all that just holds everything up for an extended period of time. Right. That's interesting. It's like you're saying, basically, if you have a prior collaboration with somebody, then you may have a prior on the amount of time and effort or resources it's going to take to start up a new project with them. But if you have a new collaborator um, investigating a new question or their new data set, you have less information theoretically about how much it's going to take in terms of time and effort and resources for starting up a new project. But if you have a collaborator that you have worked with in the past, but it's an with maybe a new area that they're getting into or you're getting into, for example, you may underestimate the amount of time and effort it's going to take to, for example, just gather the data, like you were mentioning that Z variable. So how do you, when you start a new project, do you try to estimate that information, like the time and resources it's going to take to start a new project? Or what do you do to try and get at that? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, so I think I don't necessarily estimate per se, but I definitely want to put it up up front if there are any deadlines coming up because um, definitely like abstract deadlines, grant deadlines, things like that. That needs to be conveyed, I think, before anything starts to go because that puts a lot of stuff in perspective. And then you know, it's just very practical stuff. And someone's like, "I need this in two weeks or a month," and you're tr- you're traveling or at a conference for the next week or two, right? Just not going to work. Um, so I think those discussions need to happen, but I think my prior on working with someone in the past um, is also the more projects that go along. Um, you know, some collaborators are very re- um, realistic, right? I think they have really good estimates on how clean or dirty their data are. Some, not so much. Other ones, I think sometimes they have really grand ideas and they're fantastic ideas. I just think they also believe the work that goes into some of those analyses is much, much simpler than what it really is. And so you kind of can get a feel for that and kind of adjust your your estimate of time or energy um, otherwise and kind of have that discussion and be like, okay, like you think this is going to go like that last project, but I can tell you it's going to be way more complex or like, you know, the thing that you're saying sounds super simple is like an essentially like a thesis. Like, so, um, that doesn't mean I won't work with them on that project, but I definitely will be able to gauge what they want, how they want it. Um, if someone I've worked with in the past new people, it's kind of, I think either there has to be some other pressure or I have to be really excited about their data to kind of jump in unless, you know, Funding's a little tight, and they they're willing they're willing to give you some effort. So, what about you? Yeah, so I was just thinking this entire conversation we've been talking about collaborators, but as data scientists, I find that I'm also initiating projects myself. And there, there's no one to blame but yourself if you underestimate the amount of time or effort or resources it's going to take to start up a new project or do a project. And so, I'm now thinking. Well, I do think in academia and, and for example, in a biostats or a CS department, we are often working with collaborators. It is often the case that I'm working by myself to, I've got a question that I'm interested in answering. And in that case, I find I probably underestimate the amount of time it's going to take pretty consistently because I find data is often so surprising in what's there. It's always more noisy than I expect, unless there's like, literally a website where it's like 
a list of data sets. It's tabular. It's clean. I mean, in the real world, when I'm analyzing data, that's never the case. Like that's usually reserved for the classroom. Even then, I have my own opinions about whether or not we should be using clean tabular data to train our students for data science. Like I think providing them more unrealistic or more realistically unclean data set is a better way to go. But um, it's very rare for me to find like just a, a data set that I'm ready to go with. And so whenever I start a new project, I'm always underestimating the amount of time and effort it's going to take to start it. Yeah, no. Um, and I'm, I've discussed this in the past, but I think also it's like a, uh, I think of it as like a Pareto rule, like an 80, 20 rule. And that like the last 20% of a project takes like 80% of the effort. Nice, that yeah. doesn't mean it takes 80% of the work, but um, when you're kind of been in the trenches with a project for like so long, like the initial stuff, once it starts, you're excited about it. It's new, it's fresh. You can hit the ground running. You can, co- you can code for like a day or two on it. You can do analysis, seeing things. And it's like, Oh, that's interesting here and there. Like once you've been, you know, with the data, looking at the data over and over again, and then you're writing, it and I, I tend to reread my papers like multiple times for editing like if i like by the third time of reading the introduction on a paper i do not want to read it ever again um so that last 20 percent is really what gets you over the hump of actually final finishing the project and yeah. getting it off your plate so um i i like the idea of you know if you're going to start a project that you're kind of self-generating like bar yourself mm-hmm. from touching that data or doing anything for like a week and if like that intensity's still there and the excitement's still there. Okay, go for it. But like, and if you're like burning to, you're like, I cannot wait until this week's over so that I can actually hit the ground running. Versus like a week later, you're like, yeah, maybe that project wasn't as as you know great as I thought it was because once you get in the trenches, once you do that startup investment, right, it is almost like a sunken cost. And it's like, all right, well, I've already spent like two hours, three hours on this thing. I've already downloaded the data. I've already made a folder. So you know, am I am I already invested? Um, I usually try to like hold off on like some idea because in a week it might still seem great or it might just seem like, yeah, that was, that was just another idea that probably won't pan out. That's a good point. So you brought up a couple things in that. So for example, like how do you know when a project doesn't pan out? Like if, at what point along the way do you say, I'm going to cut my losses. I I invested 16 hours in this and I want to cut my losses right now because I could easily imagine another 60 hours. Uh, yeah. So I actually listened to this podcast called Before Breakfast. And I think the, the thing of today was was uh, abandon a project. I think that was it's like five minute blurbs. And I think that's what she talks about today. So it was interesting. Um, it's hard. It's hard to abandon a project because of that sunken cost. I think you find it's it's own it's really a struggle especially when it's it's you're with other people right with a student or something like that and they've invested time um usually you gotta you don't have to get something out of it you can't always get something out of a project but like if you spent time if a student spent time especially thesis work or anything like that I, i you know i try to find where there is some some stuff that we can get out of this right but um i agree there are some instances where it's just like this method or this analysis isn't going to work or you thought you'd be able to answer a question digging into the data more they might not just have what you need so i tend to shift the hypothesis or the question around a bit still something that might seem impactful but that that kind of does lead me to the beginning of a project so i like to like visualize like all right this project is so successful everything goes right one do i care <laughs> Like, do I care even if the result, if everything was perfect, do I care about the question enough? Do I think the question's impactful enough? And then like, will other people, will this change anything? Or is it just kind of like a nice analysis that 
would be fun to do, but might not really have an impact. And I think if you can try to define some deliverables, some end goals, that can at least give you kind of a gauge on where you are at the project and whether it was kind of successful or not. That's a really good point. But like, what if, okay, so what if you do decide to cut your losses? Do you think it's worth it or valuable to put up what you do have? So say you've invested like 16 hours in a project and you decide, okay, this is not going to be for me, but I've done some maybe wrangling of the data or I've got some exploration of the data done in like a Jupyter notebook. Is it worth putting that up on GitHub to share with the world? So maybe somebody else could, for example, take what you've done and build on it or is it because it's incomplete? Then you're like, eh, it's not worth it. Just delete the entire repo. Uh, I, I almost never delete repos. I mean, everything's up there forever for me. Uh, but this does answer, uh, does raise a good question. Cause like, let's say it doesn't, it's not, not panning out, but let's say, you know, uh, effort shifts and you just don't have the time and energy to, to really dedicate yourself to that. So I think there's a lot of utility in that where a student might be able to come in the projects, like, uh, some, some aspects are done, but you have like a to-do list that you just weren't be, weren't able to get to. That's kind of nice as it maybe not an introduction project, but a project for a student to come in and maybe be able to take the reins and kind of move it forward. They get a publication. You don't get a stagnant project anymore. So I think if you think about it, that in some instances, they're not going to be like complete losses, but just stuff that you just can't spend the energy towards. I think it's really useful to keep it up. And I'm trying to think of like instances where it was like, this is just not, this is a complete just failure. Um, and I'm, I'm struggling with that. How you kind of can, you know, any of those projects I've, I've been on that have been like that. Do you have any examples? Yeah. Like if a, a project is started out with like a specific question, um, is X, Y or X and Y associated. And then you dig into it and you're like, oh, okay. So we're not actually measuring X, for example, we're measuring like a surrogate of X. And so the question that they're actually interested in isn't really possible to answer because the data that you're gathering, you don't actually observe it. So you can measure some relationship with X and Y or some surrogate of X um, and Y, but you can't actually measure X for whatever reason, like it's not possible to measure or it's just really hard to measure and capture. Like I can imagine something like that. Or for example, somebody thinks they know what they want to ask. Like I've seen this before where a collaborator thinks the question that they, they, they think they know what they want to ask. And then they give you the data and then you realize, oh, you're never actually going to be able to answer this question with this data for a variety of reasons. There could be many reasons why it's not possible. Um, and so then you're like, okay, but do you want to continue to explore this data with what you can ask? Like, I mean, there are a pos- set of possibilities in which a set of questions that you could ask about um, that do that are reasonable and logical and, and could be answered. But then often the collaborator is like, no, that's not what I'm actually interested in. And then you have to explain to them, oh, well, let's talk about the type of data that maybe we could gather to answer that question. So there could be time investment towards starting a new project, learning about the data, exploring the data, and then realizing you can't actually answer the question that you want to ask. That was really confusing, I think. <laughs> no, I think that makes sense. It's I think that in some respects, that's almost kind of the somewhat of the best case scenario because you can usually identify that pretty quickly. That's true. I mean, yes, you're going to sink a, a few hours into it, but you're not sinking like months or, or anything like that. I think those are, are just reasonable discussions. And I, I would find that I found that a lot of collaborators, okay, will reframe the question um, to a different aspect of it, or or you might use it uh, to gather some descriptive information that could be go toward that go towards some estimates of some other thing that might be useful for a pilot or for a grant or something like that. So the issue with that is if 
if you're an academic data scientist, it's like, that's great. But if you're really trying to get publications out of that, that, that can be kind of a not, not as great, right? Uh, I mean, it's fantastic to get pilot data for a grant. Um, but if you aren't really stoked to go on to that grant, um, it's like, okay, this was nice, nice effort. You know, you got, you know, you got paid to do the work, which is nice. Um, and you got the results for what they needed, but it's not necessarily going to give you a publishable, you know, uh, record. Uh, but that's okay. Uh, not everything needs, not everything can pan out or will pan out. Um, I think it's funny because, you know, you definitely see data and you're like, oh, this method's going to definitely work on this data. And then it does not. It does not at all. It's like granular enough. Or- yeah, that you just need to talk about that. And th- those stories, I find those stories, I, I really would love if more people gave like talks about that. And then what did they do? Right. I think that's that is an interesting question we're trying to answer. I, I don't know. I don't know if it yeah. like failed completely. If I, we know, I mean, you could always make a data resource available. Yeah. Okay, so another question we had was how or when do you know to end a project? So not just like abandon, but say the analysis is complete, you've published a paper, or maybe you haven't published a paper. Like, how do you know you've done enough to basically say, I'm done with this analysis, I want to move on? Is it just the last commit date and you're like, that's it? Or like, <laughs> No, that's an interesting question, especially for an academic data scientist, right? So like, I think it's very interesting because I believe in industry, like uh, focus on this type of data, this type of product might shift. And, you know, they usually give like a closeout time, like we're not working on this aspect of the project anymore. And so that shifts um, due to market forces, a whole other things, reorganizations in the company. And that's understandable. Whereas in academia, a lot of times uh, I feel like, you know, you got to say like, is there still money in this project? Right. When, but grants end and things like that. And so um, I will say like, if funding stops, uh, sometimes the project stop with it. Uh, that's very clear. But the interesting thing with academia is if you publish a paper or you're in the, you're in the, public yeah. uh, publication process right uh you definitely sometimes have to contribute to papers where the funding has since run out uh i would say stopping a project when, right. when there's no more money left that's probably a good indication so that's a very uh, clear way to define the end of a project or end of an analysis one thing that i've been thinking about a little bit with roger Peng is whenever you build a data analysis you're building it i mean theoretically for some audience that audience could be yourself for example, or it could be, I could be building the analysis for you, John. And usually what happens is the audience has something that they want to see in the analysis, not a result, but maybe it's a plot, or maybe it's a particular type of method, or maybe it's, it could be a variety of things. When you're building the analysis, the audience is going to keep asking about like the specific set of things that they want to see in the analysis. They, I mean, hopefully are not trying to tell you that they want a particular result, but they just want, for example, just say like it's a plot. They're like, I want to see a scatter plot of this and this. That's what I need to see to be able to be convinced that this analysis is done or whatever. And so usually what happens in my experience is that the analyst goes back and iterates until that thing is complete. Um, and now the audience could be you as well. Like you could be saying like, this analysis isn't really done until I can see or confirm this thing with this plot or with this method or with this idea. And so I'm never really convinced that the analysis is done until I see that. Now, the problem is I struggle to often to identify what that 
element is? Like, what is that plot that I need to be able to convince myself? And I only kind of sort of discover it as I go along in the data analysis. At some point that I'm like, oh, this is what I need to really be convinced that the analysis is done. And so I may, for example, choose to say, I'm putting a pause on this analysis, like I'm good with up until now and I'm going to publish what I have, but then I'm going to come back and revisit it because I'm really unsatisfied because I haven't really been able to demonstrate or show the thing that I actually wanted to show. So maybe I'll revisit the project a year later after I've got some funding for it or something. So have you ever experienced anything like this? Hmm. Uh, I mean, there definitely are different stakeholders in, in a lot of analyses. Um, so I agree with that. I don't know if I ever think of like, this is the one thing I would be convinced. Or, or it might not be one thing. It could be a set of things. I believe in some respects what you're talking about is the robustness of your results to certain violations of your assumptions. Like where you say like, this is the analysis, this is the result. And, you know, I think whenever anyone says like, oh, there could be an unmeasured confounder or what if you tried this method or this, 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 I think in some respects, they're all challenging certain implicit or explicit assumptions about your analysis, right? Right. And it's it's interesting because that that uh, sensitivity analysis or robust analysis is very rarely included in a paper. Right. It might be given to a reviewer, but maybe not even be in the supplemental material. Right. But yeah, no, I I, I think it's interesting that I, uh, on the other end of it, I think as a reviewer, I feel that a lot. That like if I saw this, I would agree or I could really feel comfortable with this method, right? So maybe a different stakeholder, someone who's like totally removed from the analysis. So um, I definitely feel that on the other side. I don't know by, of analyses I do myself if I'm like, well, if I see this, I, I agree with the results I presented. That's an interesting premise though. Not that you agree with the results, but that just that you're Mm -hmm. like, it's complete. However you define complete. I mean, like, how do I know in an analysis, like I'm ready to stop. Like I'm, I feel like I'm ready to move on and do something else, or I'm ready to publish the results, or I'm ready to, to end or put a pause in what I've done. So that's like one way I've been thinking about trying to know like when to end something and that is very much audience dependent but again the audience could be yourself and so then you have to ask yourself all the time like what is it that i need to see in my analysis to be convinced or to know to say that now i'm complete or this analysis is complete and often it's a lot (laughs) this is like the struggle i have with inferential statistics in general is we don't we don't know if we're right most of the time like simulations can help but like i have uh, shifted some of my focus in the past to like segmentation problems and imaging. So I have like some metric or criteria or evaluator that I can say like, th- if I get above this threshold, like that's good or bad. So I think there are some defined metrics in that way, but you know, they're all conditional on like, you know, the ground truth that we're training on and testing against, but inferential statistics, it's a lot harder especially because, you know, you worry about replicability and generalizability, but you have, still have to publish your piece of the puzzle because there can't be no replication if no one submits, you know, the first analysis of it or even the second or the third. So I guess um, for me, it's just, what if I tried something completely wrong and I still get somewhat in the same neighborhood? But that's that's a very loosely defined thing. So I guess... If I pull some of my collaborators, ask what they would say, like, what are the weaknesses in this analysis and try to poke holes in it as much as I can and see how, how, how bad or how much the results change, I think I would probably feel pretty comfortable with going forward with that. 
So you're looking for, so to be complete, for example, there's an end in analysis, you're looking for what I would call skepticism. So you want an analysis that's very skeptical in the sense that you're looking to see is X related to, so if you're looking at X and Y, are they associated with each other? You want to know is X associated with Z or is X associated with any other thing? Like, is there any other explanation that could explain the relationship between X and Y? So you're looking at all these other possibilities of ways that could explain the relationship between X and Y. And then if you feel confident and that you've explored that space enough or that you have been skeptical enough, then either with um, by looking and investigating the evidence that you have found and seeing if it's robust um, to potentially other things, then you would feel more confident in saying, I'm done, right? Yeah, yeah I, th- I think that encapsulates it really well. So that's the, what you need to feel like an analysis is complete. But often it's just, it's something really simple. Like sometimes uh, people want to see a p-value, for example. Like they need to see a p-value before they're willing to say like, okay, we can move on. I don't think necessarily that's the best approach, but it happens all the time. And so just trying to put into words how we define what we mean by when an analysis is done or complete, I find to be like a really fascinating thing. Yeah, I I think it's intriguing because in order to study this in some respects, I think you have to do like experimentation and you can't really do that. You can try, but it's not a good, I don't know if it's a great thing to do in collaboration. Like let's say you gave, right? Let's say you made three different reports and they said slightly different things or like you changed one or two things and you gave like them randomly to a collaborator or you gave all of them to a collaborator and then they kind of ranked them, but only one of them's like the real analysis. Right. Um, that's intriguing. Cause like, but like collaborators are already, are already busy enough. They're like, I just want the actual stuff. I don't want, I don't want you to make up stuff and have me decide things like that because I could see, right. or, or I think it's interesting if you gave them different amounts of information from the same data set, but like you excluded this or you included that or things like that. If they would determine one's complete over the other, then you could maybe boil that down to like essential elements on how, how um, person specific would that really be? I think is an interesting experiment, but then you'd have to have a lot, you have to have some willing collaborators, I think in that. Yeah. I haven't thought about it at all. The experimental side of to test these ideas. I've just been thinking about how do you define like a complete analysis? <laughs> Yeah. Or when an analysis is done. But that's a really good idea, too, to try more experimental techniques. Okay. So do you want to wrap it up? Well, so let's see. I think new projects, I think definitely good collaborators. For me, I would I would say probably yes over most times. Also, you know, to be frank, in an academic setting, sometimes people who are your funders or that are more senior than you, like chairs and deans and things like that, sometimes, you know, projects come down from the top. And personally, I wouldn't say there's no choice there, but I, I definitely am, are way likely to take those projects if it's recommended by someone I respect and trust and then also technically one of my bosses. Uh, so that that's definitely a yes for choosing a project. Um, and really if the data set, like if a week goes by and I'm like, I really want to get after that, those are come, some of the things I would say for a new project, but I'm really uh, not great at estimating necessarily how much time it's going to take, but at least I think having meetings and discussions on what deadlines are, are coming up, what 
uh, time frame do the collaborators uh, consider? And that might be, you know, myself. I try to make a timeline for myself and then see if that's reasonable, if it was just me on the project, and then kind of reevaluate them after like a week or two and be like, look, we looked at the data and this is going to take way longer than you'd expected. Or actually, this seems totally appropriate. So those are some of the new steps I would I would suggest um, for some people trying to choose projects. All right. What about yourself? Yeah. And also another reason I would take a new project is if I'm just excited about either the question or the problem, or if I'm excited about the idea of the the approach to solve the problem. So if I've got a particular method that I think is really appropriate or could have a huge impact on addressing this problem, then I'm more than likely to go down the, the path of accepting the project. So often in genomics, I'm switching between different types of genomics data that I'm analyzing, and there are often many nuances that I'm not familiar with about each new data set. And one approach that I have found in terms of helping me estimate the amount of time it's going to take to start up a new project in a new area is to talk to people who worked in that area. So I myself might not have experience working with that particular data, but I could reach out to people who I know do work with that data or that type of technology or in this area with this new problem. And I can say, hey, what are the pitfalls or what are the things to watch out for in terms of getting started in this area? Often there may be a review online for me to read about some of these details, but in my field, my my specific field of genomics, it tends to move very fast. And so reviews tend to be much later than mm-hmm. what I would actually need them to be available for. <laughs> so reaching out to people who work in this area have has been a huge benefit for me in terms of estimating the amount of time it takes to start up a project. So do you want to wrap up with some unwritten rules of, of data science? Yeah, you go first. All right, so my unwritten rules of data science um, are to write code for someone else to read because in six months, that person is going to be you. You're going to be a different person. You're not going to know anything about this project. And you'll you'll either help or hurt your future self by how much documentation you do today. So true. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then you write code today and you're like, ah, my future self will definitely know about that. No. Oh, man. I cannot express to you how many times I have been yelling at myself previously from six months ago saying, what in the world was I thinking? <laughs> uh, my unwritten rule is commit early and commit often. So whenever you're working in academic setting, in an academic data science setting, you're often writing code. And sometimes I find people get parallels, paralyzed by committing and pushing their code to GitHub, for example. And so what they often do is just either fail to commit at all or fail. They do commit, but then they fail to push to GitHub. And so the worst is like if you don't commit at all, because then if you want to go back to your code the way it was two weeks ago, you're basically screwed. Like you're just out of luck. Um, And so if you're not committing early and committing often, it's hard to take advantage of version control because the whole idea is little snapshots of your project over time. And then it's really important to push, I find, if you want to get feedback from the community. And that's one of the best ways that I have found to getting involved with new projects is I push some code to GitHub and then I'm like, hey, can somebody give me feedback on this? Does somebody have an idea on this? Does somebody want to expand upon this? And then all of a sudden you're getting a a discussion going with new people that maybe you've never met before. So there are a variety of reasons why it's good to commit early and commit often and push. 
All right. Thanks, everybody. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at CorrespondAuth, or my handle is StrictlyStat, and Stephanie's is Stephanie Hicks. And you can email us at thecorrespondingauthor at gmail.com.